Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's episode, I talk to crime author S.J.I. Holiday about her trip on the Trans-Siberian train across Mongolia and Russia. But more than that, we go into much of what makes us want to travel far from home. So what would you do if you only had a short time to live? Most people have some kind of travel on their bucket list, and when Susie had a near miss in the London terror attacks, she decided to head off on a round-the-world trip. It wasn't that she had a short time to live, it's just she realised that life was so short. Her experience on the Trans-Siberian Express resulted in a crime novel many years later, and in this interview we talk about what she learned along the way. We also talk about why reflection on mortality makes us want to travel, the importance of getting out of your comfort zone, why spiritual places draw us in other countries, and why we might have more in common with travellers from other countries than we think. So I hope you enjoy the interview today. S.J.I. Holiday is a scientist, writing coach and the best-selling author of five crime novels, including the Bankstown trilogy set in a fictional town in Scotland. Susie was born and raised in Scotland, but today we're talking about her novel, Violet, which is set on the Trans-Siberian Express Railway. Welcome, Susie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. And like, I think the Trans-Siberian Express, it just has this kind of romance about it. Now, you went on the railway in 2006. So take us back. Why did you decide to take that trip? Well, it was actually part of a much bigger trip. Um, And it came from actually something that happened in 2005, which was the London bombings. And what happened was that weekend, my husband and I were supposed to go to a gig and it was cancelled because of this. And it just made us both think about what we were doing. And we were both working full time and we were, you know, just living a kind of normal life. And we thought, you know what, we should go off and do some travelling because you never know what's going to happen to you. Um, so the, the, we thought, right, we'll book something. So we basically spent about five months planning a trip. And we then left in January 2006 and went on a six month round the world trip. And there was lots of different places we went to, lots of different modes of transport. And one of those was the Trans-Siberian. Wow. Okay. That's, that is a big thing that you, 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 so you weren't in the London bombings, but it was just this close. We were just there and we were, I had, my sisters were coming down to visit me that weekend and they got turned away. Their train got like taken away um, on the way down. It was stopped and they were left and taken back. And my brother was, running around on a scooter going to King's Cross and things like that all on that day and it just made me think you know anything could have happened and I was lucky that nothing did happen to me or anyone close to me but it just gave me a big of a, a bit of a jolt about life and made me think I want to do something um and so travel was the the thing so that but that's really interesting about travel because why is it that when we have 
an experience like that, when we come up against our mortality, why do we kind of almost default? Maybe it's a personality type, but I'm obviously the same. Why do we go, I must go traveling? <laughs> it's a weird one, isn't it? Because one of the first things that one of my flatmates said to me when I said where I was doing this trip, she went, oh, well, be careful. You know, anything could happen. And I said, this is the whole point. Anything could happen anywhere. And I think you put things off. And you think, oh, I'll, I'll take a trip one day or I'll go on that holiday and I'll do this and I'll do that. And that day never comes because you kind of get sucked into work and life and everything else that you're doing and it doesn't happen. So I think is when you get faced with something like that, it just makes you reevaluate things and you think, would I regret if I'd never taken the time off work to do something big and bold and go around the world and I think the answer was yeah we would so that's what we decided to do and ever since then it's been a thing um, that we do that we, we try and go as many trips as we can and go to many different places and have many different experiences because I just always now just have that kind of thing in the back of my mind of you might never get this chance it's weird I mean I know you do the same so yeah, um, I, I yeah. think some people, you know, some people want to stay home and kind of bolt the doors and other people want to get out there and see the world. So, yeah, I think that's fantastic. But then, OK, so six months you travelled around the world. Yeah. Now, um, you know, six months is not actually that long when you think about the size of the world. Um, so why choose the Trans-Siberian Railway? Because that is that is actually, you know, an interesting choice, I think. Yeah, well, we did quite a big it was we tried to do like a whole circular trip. And so a lot of the times. I was trying to avoid just the same old thing of getting a flight everywhere because I think you can see so much more by taking different modes of transport. So we took some boats and um, different things and then we decided trains. We'd do a few trains. We did trains in other countries, but I'd always kind of heard about Trans-Siberian and didn't really know much about it. So we decided we'd go for that. And I think I think it's about a week if you do it nonstop, but we decided to have a couple of stop-offs. Um, and just thought that the way that I kind of built the trip, I, I kind of planned the whole six month trip around being able to circle back from China that way back to Europe via Russia. So it was kind of a way to make the trip work without lots of back and forward flights and also just something I thought this is something you've got to do and um, definitely was. <laughs> yeah, very, <laughs> and and still, I think an, an unusual trip. So uh, we're going to go through some of the stops. So the train yep. stops in Ulaanbaatar, and of course, um, you know, the the book Violet, we should say, kind of follows, uh, you know, the protagonist on the railway. <laughs> so yes. so that's interesting. Reading the book, obviously, I I've kind of thought that some of these things might have happened to you. Obviously, not all of it because it is a crime novel. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the train stops in Ulaanbaatar, which in Mongolia. So Mongolia, you know. It's always used as one of those middle of nowhere kind of places. <laughs> so, um, yep. and I know now, like I work for a mining company and it's, you know, things are happening in Mongolia, but what was like, what stood out um, about that? Like, why was that a really quite a different place? Well, like you said, it's one of those places that it's almost like mythical because you just think no one's really gone to Mongolia. It's not a real place. And um, I think the difference is when you're in places like, so we were in um Beijing and Shanghai and all these kind of big Chinese cities that are just packed full of people, packed full of um, sort of modern things mixed with older things. And it's all hustle and bustle. And then you come across this kind of desolate land and arrive in Ulaanbaatar, which is also desolate. And um, it's quite a strange place because it's it does have that kind of feel of they're trying to turn it into a real city by having some high rises and some businesses that are there. And, and um, but then they've still got I mean, it's not a rich place. They don't 
they can't grow their own food. Um, so a lot of stuff gets imported from China. So they're, you know, it's they're kind of in the desert and it's just odd. It's it's like they it it felt to us like they'd started building this city and then they just kind of either gave up or ran out of money. I don't know what, but you know, it was all kind of potholes and um, sort of wild children running around the streets. And, you know, it's got a feel of quite a poor place but then it, it you know then it has got these kind of flashier kind of business things popping up so it's quite a dichotomous place and um i had no idea what to expect really and um even now i think if i went back i can't imagine it would be hugely different <laughs> yeah I, I mean i know some people who work on the big mining project there and i mean obviously they've they've got mineral wealth and um metal wealth i think uh but it's under the land so yeah <laughs> it might take a while but it's interesting so you mentioned there the sort of desolation and um you know that sort of desolate landscape uh you know which in in my mind does is kind of starkly beautiful but definitely outside most people's comfort zone so what what what, what is important about getting out of your comfort zone when it comes to travel? Well, I think it's just if you're going to be away, and especially so far away, then I think you need to do things that you're never going to do anywhere else. So we'd been in, I think we'd only been in the, the city for one night when someone said, you know, you don't want to hang around here. You want to go on a tour and go onto the step and spend time with the nomadic family. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, it's it was, again, one of those things where you kind of think, I don't really know what to expect, so we'll just go with it. And we ended up, there was only four of us and a guide, and we went out in this battered old van, which seemed to take forever. It had no suspension. It just seemed to be driving aimlessly across no roads, but um, the driver seemed to know where he was going. And uh, eventually we arrived at this um, this nomadic camp after a few stop-offs to see uh, you know, wild horses and things like that, which is all amazing. And then you arrive in the camp and you, there's a couple of tents and there's literally nothing there. You are in the middle of nowhere yet again. And the beds are made of some sort of hard material. And again, they don't really have much food and everything's just completely different. And it, I think you get there and you just think, right, well, I'm just going to have to go for it now because this is where I am. And then I think you just kind of grow into that experience and it's something that you'll always have that it's almost hard to explain to others. But it's um, anywhere you go, I think it's important to kind of do something completely different. Yeah, I love that attitude. You said, this is where I am. And mm. that, that's like a sort of Buddhist mindfulness <laughs> moment. You know, this is where I am and I will take it in type of thing. <laughs> but of course, yeah. I guess you went before... Um, smartphones as well yes we did have phones but they weren't um yeah they weren't smartphones and we did use phones in certain places i think there may have been phone reception there but there's no chargers or anything so it was kind of pointless um so it did feel quite it did feel quite isolated in that sense because there's nothing you could do about it there's also no way you could leave because you were at the mercy of the people who had brought us there and who were then staying with us uh, i think we stayed there two nights um, and yeah, you just do it. And then, you know, so they come and tell you right now we're going to ride horses and you're like, okay, cause what <laughs> else are you going to do? Um, and you know, the food and drinks and stuff, I tell you, I, I did actually struggle with the food and drink there because they, um, I'm quite squeamish with certain things. And one of them in particular is anything to do with sheep. So I don't like lamb. I don't like mutton. I don't like anything, uh, with sheep or goats in fact. And so the, uh, but that's what their main thing is. So there, there was, um, tea made out of mutton's boiled mutton's milk, um, <laughs> which really didn't smell nice. 
And then they, they were making up this lovely big stew, which had, you know, carrots and veg and all sorts of stuff. It looked lovely. And then just as it was about to be served, they just piled in a load of mutton. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I literally almost starved for two days when I was there. But it won't do me any harm. But, you know, it was one of those things where I did try my hardest, but I really was struggling, especially with the milk tea. <laughs> yeah, I've got to say, this is part of this uh, in my head, the idea of the Trans-Siberian Express, it's not like a gourmet trip. <laughs> the countries that you're going through are not like gourmet. <laughs> no, they're not. And, the, and I know we're going to move on to Russia in a second, but even we were kind of thinking, oh, my God, I can't wait to get to Russia. The food will be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, just, just before we move on to Russia, um, in, in uh, Violet, there is an experience with a shaman in Mongolia. And I wondered, because spiritual experiences are often part of travel. I think maybe because we're more open and we're out of our environment, maybe we're in nature more or, or something, you know, uh, what was that, you know, an aspect of the experience or was there anything else that kind of went into that? Not really. Um, unfortunately, when we got there, they were uh, nearby villagers were setting up. I say villagers. I mean, the, they literally all live in separate little tent compounds, but they were setting up for a, midi, a mini Nadam festival, which is where they do all the archery and, and shooting and things like that. And it's quite a big thing in Mongolia. And they have, as well as the big annual ones, they have little mini ones. So they were setting that up. And so they have all these kind of things there and they, they do have um, shamans that are around and they have, a, there's a, a little hill there called an uh, Uru, I think, which was a sort of shamanic site and all this kind of stuff. So we were kind of fascinated but from afar, but we didn't actually get to experience any of it directly, which is a shame because one of the things I do like also doing uh, on trips is uh, visiting things like temples because I at home, I mean, I'm not I'm not a religious person. I don't even know if I'm a spiritual person, but I find those places very peaceful, um, especially in other countries, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot more space in other places where people are kind of a bit more open to those things. And I think living in London, um, it's it's not the thing that you see very often as, you know, a giant Buddha or something like that. So whenever I'm somewhere where these things exist, I like to kind of just get a little flavour of them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm the same. And I think it's kind of an, uh, generations and, you know, sometimes even thousands of years of worship in one place almost seems yeah. to change the atmosphere of, of an area. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I couldn't quite get what I was trying to say, but that's it. It's like it's, it's like it, the whole place is soaked in it. So if you if you go to visit a place like that, you feel it and you just feel what other people feel. Whereas I just don't think that we really get that here because um, there's so many different religions and so many different things, but it's much more transient in a way. Yeah, I mean, the energy in London is, is its own thing. <laughs> but let's yeah. um, let's yeah. move, move on to uh, Siberia. So the next stop on the train uh, where you, you got off, or in the book they got off, uh, was uh, Irkutsk. Is that how you yep. say it? In Siberia? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that, you know, the word Siberia, I mean, in my head, it is cold, it's snowy, it's got work camps, people are dying. It is not, you know, I know that's history, but it doesn't feel like somewhere, you know, that might be welcoming. So what were your impressions of Siberia? Well, again, that's the same thing. You think like Mongolia, Siberia, these are places that are, are far away and, and that people there are not going to be very happy. Well, um, the, Siberia, it wasn't cold when we were there because it was kind of springish. So it wasn't warm, but we were walking around with, without coats and stuff. There wasn't any snow, um, and uh, but it just it did feel a bit grey. Like this, everything was a bit grey, and then occasionally brightened up by a very beautiful church. 
um, with lots of colours. That's definitely a very Russian thing. Um, but apart from that, there wasn't. I found Irkutsk quite a strange place. I, I felt like everyone was kind of, I, I don't know, waiting for something to happen, and nothing was going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was odd. The most lively place, which is a place I mentioned in the book, is the indoor market. Um, I think possibly that's where everybody was is during the day, because just all the, you know, what those places are like. There's all the the smells of food and you know all the stuff that's going on, and they're lively. So it, apart from that, that the city actually felt quite strange and desolate it wouldn't i mean we were i think we were there for two days and i don't think i'd really want to be there much longer yeah uh, so i'm not going to put Irkutsk on my list <laughs> <laughs> it's worth seeing as a stop off i think because i think when you do this trip you, it is important to stop off because it's it's a long time on a train otherwise and um there are other trips you can do we were supposed to go to a trip to lake baikal and we couldn't do it for whatever reason and I think if you're doing that, it would be worth it. I mean, that that looks you see that on the train when you pass it and it looks beautiful. So I think if you're doing it, you just have to make sure you manage to get someone to take you there. Get off. So um, so how long were, was the whole train trip with all the stops and things for you? I think um, I've been trying to work this out when I've been doing the timeline of my book because uh, it's a while and it must have been about 10 days, I think, or maybe close 10 days to two weeks, roughly. Mm. Uh, and then a bit more time at the end and then we moved on. So, yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but um, it's hard to remember in a way because the train the, po- the train portions all kind of blur into one because um, mm. you are just you're in a cabin or or else you're in the, the, the dining car or else you're getting off and you're doing weird things like, uh, you know, they have to change the bogies when they change country because they're different uh, gauges of tracks. So that takes several hours. So you just literally have to wait while they go along, lift each carriage up, change all the wheels, put it back down again. Wow. Yeah. And they have to do that every single time because it's that's quicker to do that, I guess, than to build a whole new rail system. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. But it says weird things. And then quite often you, uh, some of the stops, quite a lot of little stops that people don't get off at, but you get off and stretch your legs and there's people selling things on a platform, uh, you know, food and there's a little kiosks and stuff. So you get off and... Have a little walk up and down, and you've always got that slight panic when you get off a train at a stop that it's going to go away and leave you there. <laughs> so there is always that as well, like making sure you get back on. But um, yeah, there's uh, it's definitely a trip I would I would recommend. Yeah, um, apart from the weird stops, it is worth it definitely. Well, I think it's interesting traveling by train. It's like you said there, the train portions kind of merge into one, and like partly that sounds like. Uh, you know, oh dear. But then I also feel like it's great. Like I've been on longer trips on the Amtrak in the USA, for example. And actually, we don't get to relax like that on trips. Like I've I've just got back from flying, you know, from Vegas and my my plane flight was pretty terrible. And my, you know, my, it it was too quick almost, you know, and you almost like your soul is left behind and jet lag is your soul catching up. I mean, is that that's different on a long train, I guess. Yeah, definitely, because you're you're meeting different people, and and you'll be with certain people for the whole time, and then it'll change because someone will get off at a different stop, and other people will get on, and you'll have that crossover, and uh, you're just it's just one of those times when you just do get to completely relax because there isn't really anything else to do. Uh, I did actually start writing when I was on the train, um, f- like for the, my first ever book which I didn't finish, but it was on that train that I started doing it because I thought, well, I'm on this train for days. I might as well start doing something now. Oh, um, how interesting. Yeah, yeah and I never I never really knew. Um, 
I, I kind of hoped I would use the trip at some point in a book and it wasn't until now that it kind of has come out as being right. Like, yeah, this is the right time because I always wanted to write something about traveling and because I love the way that you meet people that you probably wouldn't bump into at home. And I think you've got different, you, you, you talk differently to people and you've got different expectations and you almost feel like everyone's in the same boat. So you trust people more. Um, so that's kind of what I, I used that element of it specifically in the book. Yeah. And, and of course, when it's got a specific start and a specific end, you kind of have a structure for, for a book anyway. Exactly. Which yeah. did make it very easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is a great background. But I want to ask about Moscow because that's the final stop uh, on, yeah. on the train. I haven't been there, but um, like you mentioned the colourful um, churches and the architecture. That's obviously what Moscow is kind of famous for. Definitely on my list. So yeah. um, what are some of the, and of course, much of it is ancient and historical, so would still be true whenever people are going. So what, what were some of the highlights of, of Moscow? Again, it was just the the sights of the of the place. I mean, it's a really bustling, busy city, and there's all sorts of people there. There's a, I mean, the main so the Red Square and and St Basil's Cathedral is obviously the the things that you see most of in tourist guides and things like that. And of course, that's beautiful. But just walking along the river, um, uh, like I think I always find that when I go to a city, finding the river is a good place to start because there's always sort of things that are attached to rivers. Like I love that in London. I love it in Paris. Um, New York and so Moscow is one of those where you find kind of hidden gems like so we kind of walked along and we found Gorky Park which I'd only ever heard of in the Scorpion song um, and then realised it's an actual real place it's a fun park and a big um, sort of park by the side of the river and at the time we went it was still the sort of 70s version so it had very scary looking rides we went on one which i just thought we were, it was going to spin off and we were going to die and i thought of all the ways to die on a trip it's going to be <laughs> on a roller coaster in gorky park um i mean that's all been done up now so uh, you get anyone who goes now will miss out on that kind of like uh slightly terrifying 70s roller coaster but um things like that just walking along and then you know we found it we came across a market where they just sell in um, rows and rows and rows and rows of, of, you know, those babushka dolls. And I loved them. I was obsessed with them as a kid. And I remember my brother throwing the little baby one out of my set under a truck. Oh no, that's really my favourite one. <laughs> I know, the little tiny little peapod shaped one. Yeah, so I just was obsessed. So I think I bought about 10 different sets and brought them all back. Um, so it's just things like that that are like things that you think of of being in Russia and even though you can buy them here, actually going there and seeing them and seeing the people selling them. And they're so proud of them. You know, they're all they're all hand painted and, um, you know, they're all different kinds of faces. And, uh, you, you know, you get sort of novelty ones and all sorts So just things like that that really stood out. Um, but what also stood out, again, was the fact that the food was just rubbish. <laughs> it just it's really I mean, again, I kind of thought, you know, hearty stuff, goulashes. I know that's probably Czech, but it's all kind of similar kind of um food from those regions but we just didn't seem to really come across anything particularly outstanding and, but you know there's probably some very good fine dining restaurants in Moscow which we didn't go to because it's so expensive anyway everything was so expensive um, and that was we were a backpackers budget but we did have to pay a lot more for hotels there because uh, it was just out of this world and I imagine it's even worse now so mm. That's one downfall, but it's definitely somewhere I'd like to go back to um, and possibly even um, get a, a trip from there to St. Petersburg. I'd quite like to do that. Yeah, me too. And I mean, come, you know, sort of talking about Russia in general, I mean, I think circling back to what you said at the beginning, people 
seem maybe people are more afraid now of somewhere like Russia. And yet we saw during the Football World Cup, people were saying it's brilliant, you know, come to Russia. It was so good. Um, you know, what, what what do you feel about the sort of modern fear of of countries like Russia? Well, I think that's really interesting because I, my own particular fears of South Africa, because um, <laughs> I'm always worried about things I hear about there and think I wouldn't feel safe there. And then you go into Russia where there's, you know, police walking around doing all sorts and didn't feel unsafe at all. Not once. Um, even walking around late at night uh, uh, on my own at one point, I just didn't really feel unsafe there. And so I don't know if it's a lot of the stuff seems to come from certain perceptions of a place that people kind of get ingrained and then they go there and actually find it's nothing like that. So I'm quite sure if I go to South Africa, nothing will happen to me. I won't get carjacked and I'll have a great holiday. But, <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's just what you think of a place, isn't it? And I think I think that's there's a lot of places that are kind of deemed to be places you should not go on holiday or on a trip. But actually, when you get there, you'll probably be fine. Yeah, I mean, people are people generally, aren't they? I mean, uh, you know, talking of if you're worried about crime, I mean, you live in London, I lived in London for five years, you know, there's there's just as much crime in London, you know, yeah, just of of a different kind. In fact, people often will say, oh, you know, was it safe in when you lived in London? (laughs) It's like, yeah, yeah, I felt completely fine. Yeah, but that's the thing when you're the, when you're in a place, you do generally feel safe because you you have your own feel for it, and you know to stay from. You, you would get a feel and, and know to move away from a certain area or not be there. And it's the same in London every day. If I'm walking around somewhere and I don't feel comfortable, I'll go. I'll leave. You know, I'll get on a bus or I'll get in a taxi and I'll go away from there. And I think that's the same anywhere you are. So I think a lot of it is different people's perceptions and just having to experience places for yourself and. Um, just to have your wits about you. And I think that's just true of anywhere because I I think that that there's one danger of people who go travelling and think that everywhere is unsafe or everywhere is safe. You're kind of putting a whole blanket sort of decision on that and then you go somewhere where you think is safe and something terrible happens and you're not prepared for it. So I think think you just have to be a bit savvy wherever you are. Yeah, I agree. And and almost, you know, potentially travelling can help uh, help you become that type of person, like someone who's not like I think traveling helps us not be cynical as in it's kind of like, oh, wow, look how other people live and yep. feel grateful. Um, but also, as you say, be more aware and almost read behavior because you might not understand the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And the language is really interesting because you think in all these places we went to, we couldn't speak a word of any of these languages. And uh, in a lot of the places, you can't even read the signs. For, so um, they might have more now in Moscow because of the World Cup and stuff. But at the time, they, all the signs were in Cyrillic and on the metro. So we'd just get on going, don't know which way we're going and just have to, <laughs> you know, hopefully it'll be the right way. And people would help you. And that's the same in anywhere. You know, we, we'd be in China and be given a menu with just symbols and look at it blankly and laugh. And then someone would say, can I help you? And, we, you know, so there's always someone who's going to help you. And I think maybe we've been lucky, but I think also I think it's what you give across to other people as well. And if you if you're open to talking to people and you want their help, then generally they'll help you. Yeah, I totally agree. So just um, coming back to the train, uh, I mean, obviously you were backpacking and it was a while ago, so it might have changed. But I do think there are some things for long train trips that might make things um, more comfortable. (laughs) So, for example, earplugs are something (laughs) that 
I think are important. Um, so, uh, you know, does that, that you laugh there? So obviously that that rings a bell. Anything else that you, you should take on a long train journey? Earplugs. Um, well, not specifically on this train journey, but the earplugs thing. Uh, we, uh, my husband almost killed someone in China <laughs> for snoring um, <laughs> because we didn't have any earplugs and we tried to make them out of toilet paper and it didn't work. So, yeah, definitely earplugs are a massive one. Um, another one is those things that you can use to sort of wrap all the way around your backpack and tie it onto something in several places so that you're covering all the pockets and all the possible ways to move the bag. Um, because these were things that I thought in the beginning I, I packed because I'd, I read um, I, I read a book on a sort of backpacking and another one on the Trans-Siberian and there's all these tips and you think, yeah, whatever, I don't need that thing. But I bought them all anyway and I had them all stuffed into little side pockets and it wasn't until we got onto certain trains that uh, it was actually useful to be able to do that kind of thing with your bag and make sure that you felt secure. Um, because you might have the bag secured, but not all the pockets and, you know, people mm. can just unzip them so little things like that and uh, I think another thing it sounds stupid but if you're going to go on a long distance train make sure you take your favorite snacks and drinks with you because even though you will be stopping off you don't always know what you're going to get when and you know so it's it's useful just to have stuff like that and I know I mean I even got I get caught out and going to the train to Edinburgh doing that so <laughs> it's, it's so you have to pay like five pounds for a bag of nuts <laughs> exactly so yeah it's just silly little things like that and also just small things like if you you know if you do like a travel pillow or things like that it is useful because you get obviously in the cabins you get like a nice it's actually quite nice little duvets that they have in most of the sleeper cabins and you get a little pillow but it's not a very big pillow so my tip for, for that was always to pack to take unpack a pile of clothes and make it into a pillow under my pillow which is what I'd always do but yeah if you can get like an inflatable pillow then that would probably save that trouble yeah and um, it's funny isn't it because at the end of the day like traveling's awesome but if you're not sleeping and you're not yeah. eating you'll be pretty miserable so you do need like those practicalities going to the toilet of course <laughs> That's the yep. other one. But, exactly. um, you know, you do have to think about these practicalities kind of wh wherever you are, to be honest. You do. And it's the same. It's actually quite going. I think going on a train journey uh, for more than one night where there might not necessarily be showers is the same as going to a festival. So mm. it's all the things that you would take to that. So if you take wet wipes and things like that, just so that you can, um, you know, clean yourself if you can or whatever, you know, that sort of small things that might help you. I mean, to, to be fair, by the end of three or four days on a train, you're probably going to smell. It doesn't matter. Everyone's going to smell. So it's fine. But, you know, you might feel better if you've got a few little home comforts. Yeah, brilliant. So I'm interested because, of course, you're Scottish. Hopefully people can hear that in your voice. Um, <laughs> and you live in London. And one of the characters in the book talks about um, being homesick. And I wondered about, um, you know, what is home for you? Because I think of you as Scottish and maybe because of well, you are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I know you live in London, but I feel like, um, you know, I always think of you as, as a Scottish author and I always kind of think you're up there for some reason. <laughs> so what, what is home for you, especially, um, you know, in this kind of political era of potential Scottish independence? Well, it's kind of both. Um, I am still, I am definitely still Scottish and I am there an awful lot. I mean, I spend probably oh, at least a third of the year there uh, spread out over time. So that's probably why you think I'm there because I probably am oh, there a right, lot of the time. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, I moved to London for work um, and I've, I've stayed in London or thereabouts for years, but I've moved around a lot. I'm a bit of a nomad. 
I think maybe that's why I quite like the uh, Mongolian nomads, even though I didn't like their weird tea. But I like their idea that they could uh, be somewhere for a little while and then just move on somewhere else. I quite like that. Um, but I mean, the Scottish independence thing, I'm, I do hope that it won't actually affect how I live and the way that how I choose to live that is and you know where I want to live and what I want to do because I, I don't actually really want Scottish independence in the same way as I don't want Brexit I don't want I just think we're all part of a big country and, and why keep making things smaller I just don't think it's a helpful thing to do um, and I like the fact that people can move around and do what they want and I hope that that remains to be something that people like me do and, and people who actually you know live elsewhere so Mm, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm of a similar mind, and I, I wonder if traveling uh, a lot makes us like this. In that we we might have more in common with you know people in other countries who travel a lot as well than we might do with people in our own country who who don't travel. I definitely think that because I, I think when a lot of the time when I've because uh, I moved a lot within the UK and worked abroad in various places. And uh, I always felt that people were not judging me, but they were kind of, why don't you just settle down now? And then I've always thought, but but why? Like, you know, who says that I have to do that? That's, you know, I don't have to, I'm not trying to deliberately be a nonconformist in any way. I, I'm not that kind of person, but I just think, who says you have to just settle down? So, I mean, my ideal would be to be able to live in lots of places and because the work that I do now, I work from home, so I'm not tied to anything. So, and I like that. And I think that people who've never done it won't understand it. And that's also fine because I think if I'd never done it, then I would also not understand it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I I think people listening to this show... (laughs) understand it mm. <laughs> um I, I think or at least you know some people who are at home you know are dreaming of traveling in their in their minds so yeah you know even if they can't physically travel maybe money or health or you know kids or whatever um we're kind of doing it for them in a way um but I mean obviously we've got uh your fantastic book Violet but what are a uh, couple of other books that you would recommend um about the Trans-Siberian or about Russia or I guess anywhere else that you you went uh well the thing is nothing really specific we had to pack books very carefully when we went on that trip because you know if you take a backpack there's not a lot you can take with you books wise so the main books were things like there's a lonely planet guide uh trans-siberian railway which i'm sure has been updated since the one that i had but it's brilliant because it covers all the countries and all the kind of practicalities and how to buy tickets and everything you need to know really so i mean that was important and then we also used lonely planets for uh china and russia and germany so lonely planets kind of the go-to i sound like a sponsor i'm sponsoring them or now <laughs> sponsoring me um but they were they're just really useful or rough guides so that, that, that those two i think are both kind of interchangeably good um they have slightly different kind of attitudes towards things i think um but yeah, stuff like that because I didn't really, I didn't actually read any, uh, I didn't read any fiction set in any of these places before I went, which I kind of wish I had. Um, I did read some Indian stuff before I went to India, and then when I was in Russia, I thought oh, I wish I'd read something now that was set here, and I hadn't. So um, actually, you asking me that question has made me think I need to go and read some. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's so interesting. Of course, there's, there's, um, I mean, there's lots of, you know, fiction set in Russia, but it's more like which period? Because there's yeah. historical fiction, there's the modern kind of modern crime fiction about Russia is kind of, you know, oligarchs and stuff like that. But it almost feels like you were there at a period, um, you know, when it, it kind of wasn't so extreme. The wealth, the wealth wasn't so extreme, I guess, back in 2006, whereas now mm. it kind of feels like there's some extreme wealth and then there's obviously still some some poverty yeah well I mean I think that that was how it was then it might not have been quite so obvious to people outside the country but it did it did certainly seem like that and there was a lot of problems still with um you know fighting and things you know one of the weirdest things was places like McDonald's having secure body security scanners mm-hmm. um because they were having things in them it was um stuff to do with the uh, Chechens uh, crisis and things that there had been various bombs and stuff like that that they uh, target in places like that. Um, so these are things that you probably don't really hear about here that much or, you know, one of those things on the on the world news that is covered very briefly. But actually, when you're there, it was still quite a, a thing that could happen. So a bit like, you know, terrorist threats anywhere that that's what that was going on back then. So um, little things like that, I thought, were uh, unexpected. And um, and I think that the kind of people you would see around the streets that were definitely not rich. I mean, there was definitely it might be different now, but there was a very big culture of people just kind of sitting around drinking. Um, and th- there was lots and lots of kiosks just selling alcohol. And it was it seemed to be very commonplace for people just to sit on benches. And I talk about anyone from young girls and uh, young boys to old old ladies and old men. And I don't mean uh, tramps. I mean, genuine any people uh, who'd just be sitting there with a bottle of vodka. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And you just think, how does anyone actually get anything done in this place? Um, But I mean, maybe it's different now because maybe I I don't know. It's weird. Like everything uh, in our in our culture seems to be about health and alcohol awareness and all these kind of things. But, you know, what do you do in the country that makes the drink where you are? People have grown up in generations of that being a normal thing to do. Well, that... yeah, talking about generations, okay. we we're both Gen X, I I think. Yes, yeah, so we are age, drinkers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our generation hasn't hasn't learned yet, but you know we're we're heading towards the age when I guess we have to learn. But I but on that, did you sample any of the vodka? I mean, that does seem something one should drink, or any of the other. Um, uh, you mean you mentioned the the horrible tea? But yeah. um, <laughs> were there some uh, good food or drink experiences? Um, I, I, to be honest, there's nothing really, really stand out. I mean, that vodka's vodka. I don't care what anyone says about oh, whatever kind it is. No, it all tastes the same. Um, and if you put something in it, then it doesn't taste of anything. That's just a fact. I mean, they've actually had some quite good beers in different countries. Um, but one of the things we'd always have whenever we go somewhere different is look for their like their local kind of lager type beer and have them because I think that's always a good way to see what people are like about how strong their lager is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, unfortunately the Trans-Siberian is definitely not a kind of culinary trip. Um, even when we were at one point in first class carriage being served food, it was still very 1970s i'd actually like someone to go on it now and tell me if this if it's still the same or if they've actually upgraded their food options well the thing is you know i feel like trips like that are almost they keep the same because it's a historical yeah. trip that people and people want to experience it as it once would have been so let, let's just call it an adventure rather than a yes. gourmet <laughs> gourmet trip 
<laughs> Definitely. Well, there's plenty of other places to get gourmet food, so you you can't have that on every trip. I don't no, think. exactly, and that uh, that is part of what makes it an adventure. Again, you said outside your comfort zone. So, um, final question, just a kind, and we've touched on this a bit, but what does travel mean? to you um you know in an era where they're telling us we have to fly less uh you know maybe we have to shrink our world a bit uh you know what what does travel mean to you and how does it help your writing I just think it's that thing uh, that I said about the freedom and just being able to do something different and being outside your comfort zone and I think as soon as you if you're working in it I'm still working on another day job as well as writing so I'm kind of busy at my desk most of the day and so I live for traveling and being different places and experiencing different places. And, and it doesn't matter where they are. They could It could be places within my own country or far away or not far away, but just something that's out of the ordinary. Um, I think that's the thing. And so being there, always, I always get sparked for ideas by different settings or people that I see or things that happen. It's just kind of broadening your mind because I do find that if I'm very busy and I haven't left the house much because I've been working a lot then I feel quite I kind of shrink into myself a little bit and I think my my mind shrinks a little bit as well so I just feel the more that I can move around and find and see different things the more I'll keep expanding my brain that sounds very hippie-ish but you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) no expanding I totally agree expanding your your mind and expanding your life because you are you know expanding your horizons I guess Mm. yeah no, fantastic. Right, so where can people find you and your books online? Uh, well, you can go on my website, which is sjiholiday.com, or you can go on Amazon, where all my books are on Amazon. Various publishers, but they're all on Amazon. So, yeah, and uh, so Violet is the one that we've been talking about, which is the big travel one. But all my previous ones are all very different. So, uh, yeah, kind of reflecting my different phases of life, I suppose. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Susie. That was great. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.